Teddy Mouse and Taddy Mouse. An English fairy tale. Titty Mouse and Taddy Mouse both lived in a house. Titty Mouse went a leasing, and Taddy Mouse went a leasing, so they both went a leasing. Titty Mouse leased an ear of corn, and Taddy Mouse leased an ear of corn, so they both leased an ear of corn. Titty Mouse made a pudding, and Taddy Mouse made a pudding, so they both made a pudding, and Taddy Mouse put her pudding into the pot to boil. But when Titty went to put hers in, the pot tumbled over and scalded her to death. Then Taddy sat down and wept. Then a three-legged stool said, Taddy, why do you weep? Titty's dead, said Taddy, and so I weep. Then, said the stool, I'll hop. So the stool hopped. Then a broom in the corner of the room said, Stool, why do you hop? Oh, said the stool, Titty's dead and Taddy weeps, and so I hop. Then, said the broom, I'll sweep. So the broom began to sweep. Then said the door, Broom, why do you sweep? Oh, said the broom, Titty's dead and Taddy weeps and the stool hops and so I sweep. Then, said the door, I'll jar. So the door jarred. Then said the window, Door, why do you jar? Oh, said the door, Titty's dead and Taddy weeps and the stool hops and the broom sweeps and so I jar. Then, said the window, I'll creak. So the window creaked. Now there was an old form outside the house, and when the window creaked, the form said, Window, why do you creak? Oh, said the window, Titty's dead and Taddy weeps, and the stool hops and the broom sweeps, the door jars, and so I creak. Then, said the old form, I'll run round the house. Then the old form ran round the house. Now there was a fine large walnut tree growing by the cottage, and the tree said to the form, Form, why do you run round the house? Oh, said the form, Titty's dead and Taddy weeps, and the stool hops and the broom sweeps, the door jars and the window creaks, and so I run round the house. Then, said the walnut tree, I'll shed my leaves. So the walnut tree shed all its beautiful green leaves. Now there was a little bird perched on one of the boughs of the tree, and when all the leaves fell, it said, Walnut tree, why do you shed your leaves? Oh, said the tree, Titty's dead and Taddy weeps, the stool hops and the broom sweeps, the door jars and the window creaks, the old form runs round the house, and so I shed my leaves. Then, said the little bird, I'll molt all my feathers. So he molted all his pretty feathers. Now there was a little girl walking below, carrying a jug of milk for her brothers and sisters' supper. And when she saw the poor little bird molt all its feathers, she said, Little bird, why do you molt all your feathers? Oh, said the little bird. Titty's dead and Taddy weeps, the stool hops and the broom sweeps, the door jars and the window creaks, the old form runs round the house, the walnut tree sheds its leaves, and so I molt all my feathers. Then, said the little girl, I'll spill the milk. So she dropped the pitcher and spilt the milk. Now there was an old man just by on the top of a ladder thatching a rick, and when he saw the little girl spill the milk, he said, Little girl, what do you mean by spilling the milk? Your little brothers and sisters must go without their supper. Then said the little girl, 
Titty's dead and Taddy weeps. The stool hops and the broom sweeps. The door jars and the window creaks. The old form runs round the house. The walnut tree sheds all its leaves. The little bird molts all its feathers. And so I spill the milk. Oh, said the old man. Then I'll tumble off the ladder and break my neck. So he tumbled off the ladder and broke his neck. And when the old man broke his neck, the great walnut tree fell down with a crash and upset the old form and house, and the house falling knocked the window out, and the window knocked the door down, and the door upset the broom, and the broom upset the stool, and poor little Tatty Mouse was buried beneath the ruins. Wow. Just wow. Would you believe I found that in a collection of English fairy tales for children? Welcome to the Mayorzine, folks. I'm pretty sure we're going off the rails this issue. If you're one of the people who get really sick of all the Halloween people and just want to punch someone in the face after the hordes of costumed ragamuffins leave all the towns and villages devoid of candy, then this issue is for you. First, though, we have a sweet little tale by Catherine Grace Holbert about a poor boy making the best of what he and his grandmother have for Thanksgiving. It's a nice little signpost for the next holiday coming down the road. And don't worry, I'm done leaning into the holidays. I haven't been able to find anything on Ms. Holbert, so I can't really give you any fun facts or history here. In fact, this is the only story by her that I've been able to find. So far, anyway. The Gutenberg rabbit hole is very deep. So let's go find a turkey for the stuffing. A Turkey for the Stuffing by Catherine Grace Holbert It always made Ben feel solemn to watch the river in a storm. Today it was gray and rough and noisy, and the few boats, which went down toward Lake Huron, pitched about so that their decks slanted first one way, then another, and their sides were coated with ice. Grandma, what day's today? he asked at last, turning from the stormy river to glance about their warm, comfortable little room. Wednesday, Benny, answered the small old woman who crouched over the stove. Then tomorrow will be Thanksgiving Day, and the Rosses are going to have a turkey, said Ben excitedly. What are we going to have, Grandma? Mrs. Moxon looked over her glasses at her grandson's small, thin figure in its patched and faded clothes, and at his bright, eager face. Sonny, dear, what do you think Grandma has for Thanksgiving? she asked gently. The expectant look faded from Ben's face, and he winked hard to keep the tears from running over. He did not need to be told how bare of dainties their cupboard was, for everything there he had brought with his own hands. Bacon and smoked fish enough for all winter were stored away. Flour, potatoes, and a few other vegetables were there. Tell me about a real Thanksgiving dinner, the small boy begged after the first disappointment had been bravely put away. Mrs. Moxon took off her spectacles and leaned back cautiously in her broken rockered chair. 
I remember one Thanksgiving when your pa was alive. We had a dinner fit for a king. There was a ten-pound turkey with bread stuffing. I put the sage and onions into the stuffing with my own hands. We could have some stuffing, interrupted Ben eagerly. So we could, Sonny, so we could. It takes you to think of things. And Mrs. Moxon affectionately patted the little brown hand on her knee. It never would have come to me that we might have turkey stuffing, even if we didn't have any turkey. Ben beamed with delight at this praise. And was there anything else besides the turkey and the stuffing, Grandma? Land, yes, child. There was turnips and mashed potatoes and mince pie, and your pa got two pounds of grapes, though grapes was expensive at that time of year. Yes, nobody could ask for a better dinner than that was. We could have one just like it, all but the turkey and the mince pie and the grapes, said Ben hopefully. So we can, and will too, child, answered the old woman. Trust you for making the best of things. And the two smiled at each other happily. Next morning, Ben watched his grandmother add an egg, some sage, and chopped onion to a bowl full of dry bread, pour boiling water over it, and put the mixture in the oven. Your father said I made the best turkey stuffing he ever ate, she said with satisfaction. We'll see how it comes out, Benny. I can't hardly wait till dinner time, Ben said with an excited skip. I believe I'll go down to the beach and pick up driftwood for a while. You call me when the things are most cooked, Grandma. The storm of the day before had left many a bit of board or end of a log on the beach that would be just the thing for Mrs. Moxon's stove. Ben worked so hard that he did not notice a big barge that was coming slowly down the river, towing two other boats behind it, until he heard a voice ask, Hello, kid. What makes you work so hard on Thanksgiving Day? Then he straightened up to see the boat's captain standing near its pilot house and shouting through a great trumpet. I'm waiting for dinner to cook. Ben answered in his piping voice. Can't hear you, roared the captain. Run home and get your horn and talk to me. Ben ran up the little hill to Mrs. Ross's and borrowed her trumpet or megaphone. One's voice sounds much louder when these are used, and they are to be found at every house on the shores of the St. Mary's. Boats and those on the land often want to say, how do you do to each other? It was all Ben could do to hold the great tin trumpet on straight, for it was nearly as long as he was. I'm waiting for dinner to cook, the boy shouted again, and this time the captain heard him. Going to have turkey, I suppose, the captain asked. No, but we're going to have turkey stuffing, answered Ben with pride. Turkey stuffing, but no turkey. If that isn't the best I ever heard. The captain had dropped his trumpet and doubled up with sudden laughter. Luckily, Ben did not hear. What else are you going to have, he called when he had repeated the joke about him. Mince pie without any mince meat? No, sir. Ben's voice was shrill but clear. My father had mince pie for Thanksgiving dinner once, though. Did, did he? The captain dropped his trumpet again. That boy's all right, he said to the first mate. He's too plucky to be laughed at. I'm going to send him some turkey for his stuffing, Morgan. Tell the cook to get ready half a turkey and a mince pie. And say, Morgan, have him send up one of those small baskets of grapes. We'll tie them to a piece of plank, and they'll float ashore all right. Tell the cook to hurry, or we'll be too far downstream for the boy to get the things. Then he raised his trumpet again. Say, kid, can you row that boat that's tied to your dock? Yes, sir. 
Well, you hurry out into the river, and I'll put off a float with some things for your Thanksgiving dinner. You're going to have some turkey for that stuffing. You may be sure Ben lost no time in pushing the rowboat off into the stream, where the end of a plank and its delicious load were soon bobbing up and down on the water. How he did smack his lips when he lifted them into the boat, and how pleased he was for Grandma. First the stuffing, and then the turkey. My, ain't I lucky. He did not know that the captain had said he was plucky, and that luck is very apt to follow pluck. This next piece is once again by Edgar Allan Poe, but maybe not what comes to mind when you think of his name. While I want to ration his stories out like delicacies to be savored, I just had to use this one for this issue. You'll understand why in a moment. While the actual meaning of the story will become evident pretty quickly, I'll say no more and leave it to your imagination. Diddling Edgar Allan Poe. Since the world began, there have been two Jeremys. The one wrote a Jeremiah about usury and was called Jeremy Bentham. He has been much admired by Mr. John Neal and was a great man in a small way. The other gave name to the most important of the exact sciences and was a great man in a great way. I may say, indeed, in the very greatest of ways. Diddling or the abstract idea conveyed by the verb to diddle, is sufficiently well understood. Yet the fact, the deed, the thing, diddling, is somewhat difficult to define. We may get, however, at a tolerably distinct conception of the matter in hand by defining not the thing diddling in itself, but man as an animal that diddles. Had Plato but hit upon this, he would have been spared the affront of the picked chicken. Very pertinently, it was demanded of Plato why a picked chicken, which was clearly a biped without feathers, was not, according to his own definition, a man. But I am not to be bothered by any similar query. Man is an animal that diddles. And there is no animal that diddles but man. It will take an entire hen coop of picked chickens to get over that. What constitutes the essence, the nair, the principle of diddling, is in fact peculiar to the class of creatures that wear coats and pantaloons. A crow thieves, a fox cheats, a weasel outwits, a man diddles. To diddle is his destiny. Man was made to mourn, says the poet, but not so. He was made to diddle. This is his aim, his object, his end. And for this reason, when a man's diddled, we say he's done. Diddling rightly considered, is a compound, of which the ingredients are minuteness, interest, perseverance, ingenuity, audacity, nonchalance, originality, impertinence, and a grin. Minuteness. Your diddler is minute. His operations are upon a small scale. His business is retail, for cash, or approved paper at sight. 
Should he ever be tempted into magnificent speculation, he then at once loses his distinctive features and becomes what we term financier. This latter word conveys the diddling idea in every respect except that of magnitude. A diddler may thus be regarded as a banker in petto, a financial operation as a diddle at Brobdignag. The one is to the other as Homer is to Flaccus, as a mastodon to a mouse, as the tail of a comet to that of a pig. Interest Your diddler is guided by self-interest. He scorns to diddle for the mere sake of a diddle. He has an object in view, his pocket and yours. He always regards the main chance. He looks to number one. You are number two and must look to yourself. Perseverance. Your diddler perseveres. He is not readily discouraged. Should even the banks break, he cares nothing about it. He steadily pursues his end, and ut canis accorio non quam absterbitur octo, so he never lets go of his game. Ingenuity. Your diddler is ingenious. He has constructiveness large. He understands plot. He invents and circumvents. Were he not Alexander, he would be Diogenes. Were he not a diddler, he would be a maker of patent rat traps or an angler for trout. Audacity. Your diddler is audacious. He is a bold man. He carries the war into Africa. He conquers all by assault. He would not fear the daggers of Frey Heron. With a little more prudence, Dick Turpin would have made a good diddler. With a trifle less blarney, Daniel O'Connell. With a pound or two more brains, Charles Twelfth. Nonchalance. Your diddler is nonchalant. He is not at all nervous. He never had any nerves. He is never seduced into a flurry. He is never put out, unless put out of doors. He is cool, cool as a cucumber. He is calm, calm as a smile from Lady Bury. He is easy, easy as an old glove or the damsels of ancient Baie. Originality. Your diddler is original, conscientiously so. His thoughts are his own. He would scorn to employ those of another. A stale trick is his aversion. He would return a purse, I am sure, upon discovering that he had obtained it by an unoriginal diddle. Impertinence. Your diddler is impertinent. He swaggers. He sets his arms akimbo. He thrusts his hands in his trousers' pockets. He sneers in your face. He treads on your corns. He eats your dinner, he drinks your wine, he borrows your money, he pulls your nose, he kicks your poodle, and he kisses your wife. Grin. Your true diddler winds up all with a grin. But this nobody sees but himself. He grins when his daily work is done, when his allotted labors are accomplished, at night in his own closet, and altogether for his own private entertainment. He goes home, he locks his door, he divests himself of his clothes, he puts out his candle, he gets into bed, he places his head upon the pillow, all this done, and your diddler grins. This is no hypothesis, it is a matter of course. I reason a priori, and a diddle would be no diddle without a grin. The origin of the diddle is referable to the infancy of the human race. Perhaps the first diddler was Adam. 
At all events, we can trace the science back to a very remote period of antiquity. The moderns, however, have brought it to a perfection never dreamed of by our thick-headed progenitors. Without pausing to speak of the old saws, therefore, I shall content myself with a compendious account of some of the more modern instances. A very good diddle is this. A housekeeper, in want of a sofa, for instance, is seen to go in and out of several cabinet warehouses. At length, she arrives at one offering an excellent variety. She is accosted and invited to enter by a polite and voluble individual at the door. She finds a sofa well adapted to her views, and upon inquiring the price, is surprised and delighted to hear a sum named at least 20% lower than her expectations. She hastens to make the purchase, gets a bill and receipt, leaves her address with a request that the article be sent home as speedily as possible, and retires amid a profusion of bows from the shopkeeper. The night arrives and no sofa. A servant is sent to make inquiry about the delay. The whole transaction is denied. No sofa has been sold, no money received, except by the diddler who played shopkeeper for the nonce. Our cabinet warehouses are left entirely unattended, and thus afford every facility for a trick of this kind. Visitors enter, look at furniture, and depart unheeded and unseen. Should anyone wish to purchase or to inquire the price of an article, a bell is at hand, and this is considered amply sufficient. Again, quite a respectable diddle is this. A well-dressed individual enters a shop, makes a purchase to the value of a dollar, finds, much to his vexation, that he has left his pocketbook in another coat pocket, and so says to the shopkeeper, My dear sir, never mind. Just oblige me, will you, by sending the bundle home? But stay, I really believe that I have nothing less than a five-dollar bill even there. However, you can send four dollars and change with the bundle, you know. Very good, sir, replies the shopkeeper, who entertains at once a lofty opinion of the high-mindedness of his customer. I know fellows, he says to himself, who would just have put the goods under their arm and walked off with a promise to call and pay the dollar as they came by in the afternoon. A boy is sent with the parcel and change. On the route, quite accidentally, he is met by the purchaser, who exclaims, Ah, this is my bundle, I see. I thought you had been home with it long ago. Well, go on. My wife, Mrs. Trotter, will give you the five dollars. I left instructions with her to that effect. The change you might as well give to me. I shall want some silver for the post office. Very good. One, two, is this a good quarter? Three, four, uh, quite right. Say to Mrs. Trotter that you met me, and be sure now and do not loiter on the way. The boy doesn't loiter at all but he is a very long time in getting back from his errand, for no lady of the precise name of Mrs. Trotter is to be discovered. He consoles himself, however, that he has not been such a fool as to leave the goods without the money, and re-entering his shop with a self-satisfied air, feels sensibly hurt and indignant when his master asks him what has become of the change. A very simple diddle indeed is this. The captain of a ship, which is about to set sail, is presented by an official-looking person with an unusually moderate bill of city charges. Glad to get off so easily, and confused by a hundred duties pressing upon him all at once, he discharges the claim forthwith. In about fifteen minutes, another and less reasonable bill is handed him by one who soon makes it evident that the first collector was a diddler, and the original collection a diddle. And here, too, is a somewhat similar thing. 
A steamboat is casting loose from the wharf. A traveler, portmanteau in his hand, is discovered running toward the wharf at full speed. Suddenly he makes a dead halt, stoops, and picks up something from the ground in a very agitated manner. It is a pocketbook. And has any gentleman lost a pocketbook, he cries. No one can say that he has exactly lost a pocketbook, but a great excitement ensues when the treasure trove is found to be of value. The boat, however, must not be detained. Time and tide wait for no man, says the captain. For God's sake, stay only a few minutes, says the finder of the book. The true claimant will presently appear. Can't wait, replies the man in authority. Cast off there, do you hear? What am I to do? asks the finder in great tribulation. I am about to leave the country for some years, and I cannot conscientiously retain this large amount in my possession. I beg your pardon, sir. Here he addresses a gentleman on shore. But you have the air of an honest man. Will you confer upon me the favor of taking charge of this pocketbook? I know I can trust you. And of advertising it? The notes you see amount to a very considerable sum. The owner will, no doubt, insist upon rewarding you for your trouble. Me? No, you! It was you who found the book. Well, if you must have it so, I will take a small reward, just to satisfy your scruples. Let me see. Why, these notes are all hundreds. Bless my soul, a hundred is too much to take. Fifty would be quite enough, I am sure. Cast off there, says the captain. But then I have no change for a hundred, and upon the whole you had better... Cast off there, says the captain. Never mind, cries the gentleman on shore, who has been examining his own pocketbook for the last minute or so. Never mind, I can fix it. Here is a fifty on the Bank of North America. Throw the book. And the over-conscientious finder takes the fifty with marked reluctance and throws the gentleman the book as desired while the steamboat fumes and fizzes on her way. In about half an hour after her departure, the large amount is seen to be a counterfeit presentment and the whole thing a capital diddle. A bold diddle is this. A camp meeting, or something similar, is to be held at a certain spot which is accessible only by means of a free bridge. A diddler stations himself upon this bridge, respectfully informs all passers-by of the new county law, which establishes a toll of one cent for foot passengers, two for horses and donkeys, and so forth and so forth. Some grumble, but all submit, and the diddler goes home a wealthier man by some fifty or sixty dollars well earned. This taking a toll from a great crowd of people is an excessively troublesome thing. A neat diddle is this. A friend holds one of the diddler's promises to pay, filled up and signed in due form, upon the ordinary blanks printed in red ink. The diddler purchases one or two dozen of these blanks, and every day dips one of them in his soup, makes his dog jump for it, and finally gives it to him as a bon bouche. The note arriving at maturity, the diddler, with the diddler's dog, calls upon the friend, and the promise to pay is made the topic of discussion. The friend produces it from his escritoire, and is in the act of reaching it to the diddler, when up jumps the diddler's dog and devours it forthwith. The diddler is not only surprised, but vexed and incensed at the absurd behavior of his dog, and expresses his entire readiness to cancel the obligation at any moment when the evidence of the obligation shall be forthcoming. A very mean diddle is this. A lady is insulted in the street by a diddler's accomplice. The diddler himself flies to her assistance, and giving his friend a comfortable thrashing, insists upon attending the lady to her own door. 
He bows with his hand upon his heart and most respectfully bids her adieu. She entreats him, as her deliverer, to walk in and be introduced to her big brother and her papa. With a sigh, he declines to do so. Is there no way then, sir, she murmurs, in which I may be permitted to testify my gratitude? Why, yes, madam, there is. Will you be kind enough to lend me a couple of shillings? In the first excitement of the moment, the lady decides upon fainting outright. Upon second thought, however, she opens her purse strings and delivers the specie. Now this, I say, is a diddle minute, for one entire moiety of the sum borrowed has to be paid to the gentleman who had the trouble of performing the insult, and who had then to stand still and be thrashed for performing it. Rather a small but still a scientific diddle is this. The diddler approaches the bar of a tavern and demands a couple of twists of tobacco. These are handed to him when, having slightly examined them, he says, I don't much like this tobacco. Here, take it back and give me a glass of brandy and water in its place. The brandy and water is furnished and imbibed, and the diddler makes his way to the door. But the voice of the tavern keeper arrests him. I believe, sir, you have forgotten to pay for your brandy and water. Pay for my brandy and water? Didn't I give you the tobacco for the brandy and water? What more would you have? But, sir, if you please, I don't remember that you paid me for the tobacco. What do you mean by that, you scoundrel? Didn't I give you back your tobacco? Isn't that your tobacco lying there? Do you expect me to pay for what I did not take? But, sir, says the publican, now rather at a loss what to say. But, sir, but me no but, sir, interrupts the diddler, apparently in very high dudgeon, and slamming the door after him as he makes his escape. But me no but, sir, and none of your tricks upon travelers. Here again is a very clever diddle, of which the simplicity is not its least recommendation. A purse, or pocketbook, being really lost, the loser inserts in one of the daily papers of a large city a fully descriptive advertisement, whereupon our diddler copies the facts of this advertisement with a change of heading of general phraseology and address. The original, for instance, is long and verbose, is headed, A Pocketbook Lost, and requires the treasure, when found, to be left at number one Tom Street. The copy is brief, and being headed with lost only, indicates number two Dick or number three Harry Street, as the locality at which the owner may be seen. Moreover, it is inserted in at least five or six of the daily papers of the day, while in point of time it makes its appearance only a few hours after the original. Should it be read by the loser of the purse, he would hardly suspect it to have any reference to his own misfortune. But, of course, the chances are five or six to one that the finder will repair to the address given by the diddler, rather than to that pointed out by the rightful proprietor. The former pays the reward, pockets the treasure, and decamps. Quite an analogous diddle is this. A lady of ton has dropped, somewhere in the street, a diamond ring of very unusual value. For its recovery, she offers some forty or fifty dollars reward, giving, in her advertisement, a very minute description of the gem and of its settings, and declaring that, on its restoration at number so-and-so in such-and-such avenue, the reward would be paid instanter, without a single question being asked. During the lady's absence from home, a day or two afterwards, a ring is heard at the door of number so-and-so in such-and-such avenue, a servant appears, the lady of the house is asked for and is declared to be out, at which astounding information the visitor expresses the most poignant regret. 
His business is of importance and concerns the lady herself. In fact, he had the good fortune to find her diamond ring. But perhaps it would be as well that he should call again. By no means, says the servant. And by no means, says the lady's sister and the lady's sister-in-law, who are summoned forthwith. The ring is clamorously identified, the reward is paid, and the finder nearly thrust out of doors. The lady returns and expresses some little dissatisfaction with her sister and sister-in-law because they happen to have paid forty or fifty dollars for a facsimile of her diamond ring, a facsimile made out of real pinchbeck and unquestionable paste. But as there is really no end to diddling, so there would be none to this essay, were I even to hint at half the variations or inflections of which this science is susceptible, I must bring this paper perforce to a conclusion. And this I cannot do better than by a summary notice of a very decent but rather elaborate diddle of which our own city was made the theater not very long ago, and which was subsequently repeated with success in other still more verdant localities of the Union. A middle-aged gentleman arrives in town from parts unknown. He is remarkably precise, cautious, staid, and deliberate in his demeanor. His dress is scrupulously neat, but plain, unostentatious. He wears a white cravat, an ample waistcoat made with an eye to comfort alone, thick-soled cozy-looking shoes, and pantaloons without straps. He has the whole air, in fact, of your well-to-do, sober-sided, exact and respectable man of business, par excellence, one of the stern and outwardly hard, internally soft sort of people that we see in the crack-high comedies. Fellows whose words are so many bonds, and who are noted for giving away guineas and charity with the one hand, while in the way of mere bargain they exact the uttermost fraction of a farthing with the other. He makes much ado before he can get suited with a boarding house. He dislikes children. He has been accustomed to quiet. His habits are methodical. And then he would prefer getting into a private and respectable small family, piously inclined. Terms, however, are no object. Only he must insist upon settling his bill on the first of every month, it is now the second, and begs his landlady when he finally obtains one to his mind, not on any account to forget his instructions upon this point, but to send in a bill and a receipt precisely at ten o'clock on the first day of every month, and under no circumstances to put it off to the second. These arrangements made, our man of business rents an office in a reputable rather than a fashionable quarter of the town. There is nothing he more despises than pretense. Where there is much show, he says, there is seldom anything very solid behind. An observation which so profoundly impresses his landlady's fancy that she makes a pencil memorandum of it forthwith in her great family Bible on the broad margin of the Proverbs of Solomon. The next step is to advertise, after some such fashion as this, in the principal business sixpennies of the city. The pennies are eschewed as not respectable and as demanding payment for all advertisements in advance. Our man of business holds it as a point of his faith that work should never be paid for until done. Wanted. The advertisers, being about to commence extensive business operations in this city, will require the services of three or four intelligent and competent clerks to whom a liberal salary will be paid. The very best recommendations, not so much for capacity as for integrity, will be expected. Indeed, as the duties to be performed involve high responsibilities and large amounts of money must necessarily pass through the hands of those engaged, it is deemed advisable to demand a deposit of $50 from each clerk employed. 
No person need apply, therefore, who is not prepared to leave this sum in the possession of the advertisers, and who cannot furnish the most satisfactory testimonials of morality. Young gentlemen piously inclined will be preferred. Applications should be made between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and 4 and 5 p.m. of Messrs. Boggs, Hogs, Logs, Frogs and Company, number 110 Dog Street. By the 31st day of the month, this advertisement has brought to the office of Messrs. Boggs, Hogs, Logs, Frogs and Company some 15 or 20 young gentlemen piously inclined. But our man of business is in no hurry to conclude a contract with any, no man of business is ever precipitate. And it is not until the most rigid catechism in respect to the piety of each young gentleman's inclination that his services are engaged and his fifty dollars receded for, just by way of proper precaution, on the part of the respectable firm of Boggs, Hogs, Logs, Frogs, and Company. On the morning of the first day of the next month, the landlady does not present her bill according to promise, a piece of neglect for which the comfortable head of the house ending in Oggs would no doubt have chided her severely could he have been prevailed upon to remain in town a day or two for that purpose. As it is, the constables have had a sad time of it, running hither and thither, and all they can do is to declare the man of business most emphatically a hen-knee-high, by which some persons imagine them to imply that, in fact, he is N-E-I, by which again the very classical phrase non est inventus is supposed to be understood. In the meantime, the young gentlemen, one and all, are somewhat less piously inclined than before. While the landlady purchases a shilling's worth of the Indian rubber and very carefully obliterates the pencil memorandum that some fool has made in her great family Bible on the broad margin of the Proverbs of Solomon. Honestly, I think that's actually even more relevant in these times. And if Poe were alive today, the examples would be spam calls, phishing emails, and Facebook question memes. And the Telltale Heart would probably be about Alexa. If you haven't read the Telltale Heart, let me know and I'll make sure to put it in a future issue. It's a great story. So I have to stop and say that if you're the type of person who hates the movie if the dog gets hurt, you better just skip this next story. I put it at the end so you can just stop listening now without missing anything else. It's by Jack London, a Stephen King before Stephen King. He was a brilliant writer who excelled at the short-form story, very prolific and one of the first successful commercial authors in America. He wrote The Call of the Wild and White Fang, which you may have heard of. There's so much more to say about Jack London, but you will absolutely be hearing more of his work on this podcast. The man was brilliant, and I'm still going through his works to plan for future issues, so we'll talk about him again. But this next story, our featured story, refers to my comments earlier in the podcast. Ever meet a person you just instinctually didn't like and just wanted to punch in the face for no reason? Like he just has a punchable face? Well, this is the story for you. Unless you're a dog person. I mean... I'm a dog person, but I still found this story hilarious in a very, very, very black humor sort of way, and I did feel terrible for finding the story hilarious. Well, I did my job and warned you, so let's go meet Moonface and punch him in his, well, face. Moonface by Jack London 
John Claverhouse was a moon-faced man. You know the kind, cheekbones wide apart, chin and forehead melting into the cheeks to complete the perfect round, and the nose, broad and pudgy, equidistant from the circumference, flattened against the very center of the face like a dough ball upon the ceiling. Perhaps that is why I hated him, for truly he had become an offense to my eyes, and I believed the earth to be cumbered with his presence. Perhaps my mother may have been superstitious of the moon and looked upon it over the wrong shoulder at the wrong time. Be that as it may, I hated John Claverhouse. Not that he had done me what society would consider a wrong or an ill turn. Far from it. The evil was of a deeper, subtler sort, so elusive, so intangible, as to defy clear, definite analysis in words. We all experience such things at some period in our lives. For the first time we see a certain individual, one who the very instant before we did not dream existed, and yet, at the first moment of meeting, we say, I do not like that man. Why do we not like him? Ah, we do not know why. We only know that we do not. We have taken a dislike, that is all. And so I, with John Claverhouse. What right had such a man to be happy? Yet he was an optimist. He was always gleeful and laughing. All things were always all right, curse him. Ah, how it grated on my soul that he should be so happy. Other men could laugh, and it did not bother me. I even used to laugh myself, before I met John Claverhouse. But his laugh, it irritated me, maddened me, as nothing else under the sun could irritate or madden me. It haunted me, gripped hold of me, and would not let me go. It was a huge, gargantuan laugh. Waking or sleeping, it was always with me, whirring and jarring across my heartstrings like an enormous rasp. At break of day, it came whooping across the fields to spoil my pleasant morning reverie. Under the aching noonday glare, when the green things drooped and the birds withdrew to the depths of the forest, and all nature drowsed, his great ha-ha and ho-ho rose up to the sky and challenged the sun. And at black midnight, from the lonely crossroads where he turned from town into his own place, came his plaguy cachinations to rouse me from my sleep and make me writhe and clench my nails into my palms. I went forth privily in the nighttime and turned his cattle into his fields, and in the morning heard his whooping laugh as he drove them out again. It is nothing, he said. The poor dumb beasties are not to be blamed for straying into fatter pastures. He had a dog he called Mars, a big, splendid brute, part deerhound and part bloodhound, and resembling both. Mars was a great delight to him, and they were always together. But I bided my time, and one day, when opportunity was ripe, lured the animal away and settled for him with strychnine and beefsteak. It made positively no impression on John Claverhouse. His laugh was as hearty and frequent as ever, and his face as much like the full moon as it always had been. Then I set fire to his haystacks and his barn. But the next morning, being Sunday, he went forth blithe and cheerful. Where are you going? I asked him as he went by the crossroads. Trout, he said, and his face beamed like a full moon. I just dote on trout. Was there ever such an impossible man? His whole harvest had gone up in his haystacks and barn. It was uninsured, I knew. 
And yet, in the face of famine and the rigorous winter, he went out gaily in quest of a mess of trout, forsooth, because he doted on them. Had gloom but rested, no matter how lightly, on his brow, or had his bovine countenance grown long and serious and less like the moon, or had he removed that smile but once from off his face, I am sure I could have forgiven him for existing. But no, he grew only more cheerful under misfortune. I insulted him. He looked at me in slow and smiling surprise. I fight you? Why? he asked slowly. And then he laughed. You are so funny. Ho, ho. You'll be the death of me. He, he, he. Oh, ho, ho, ho. What would you? It was past endurance. By the blood of Judas, how I hated him. Then there was that name, Claverhouse. What a name. Wasn't it absurd? Claverhouse. Merciful heaven, why Claverhouse? Again and again I asked myself that question. I should not have minded Smith or Brown or Jones, but Claverhouse. I leave it to you. Repeat it to yourself. Claverhouse. Just listen to the ridiculous sound of it. Claverhouse! Should a man live with such a name, I ask of you. No, you say, and no, said I. But I bethought me of his mortgage. What of his crops and barn destroyed, I knew he would be unable to meet it. So I got a shrewd, close-mouthed, tight-fisted moneylender to get the mortgage transferred to him. I did not appear, but through this agent I forced the foreclosure, and but few days, no more believe me than the law allowed, were given John Claverhouse to remove his goods and chattels from the premises. Then I strolled down to see how he took it, for he had lived there upward of twenty years. But he met me with his saucer eyes twinkling and the light glowing and spreading in his face till it was as a full-risen moon. Ha ha ha, he laughed. The funniest tyke, that youngster of mine. Did you ever hear the like? Let me tell you, he was down playing by the edge of the river when a piece of the bank caved in and splashed him. Oh, Papa, he cried. A great big puddle flewed up and hit me. He stopped and waited for me to join him in his infernal glee. I don't see any laugh in it, I said shortly, and I know my face went sour. He regarded me with wonderment, and then came the damnable light, glowing and spreading as I have described it, till his face shone soft and warm like the summer moon, and then the laugh. Ha ha, that's funny. You don't see it, huh? He he, ho ho ho, he doesn't see it. Why, look here, you know a puddle, but I turned on my heel and left him. That was the last. I could stand it no longer. The thing must end right there, I thought. Curse him. The earth should be quit of him. And as I went over the hill, I could hear his monstrous laugh reverberating against the sky. Now, I pride myself on doing things neatly. And when I resolved to kill John Claverhouse, I had it in mind to do so in such fashion that I should not look back upon it and feel ashamed. I hate bungling, and I hate brutality. To me, there is something repugnant in merely striking a man with one's naked fist. Flah! It is sickening. So to shoot, or stab, or club John Claverhouse, oh, that name, did not appeal to me. And not only was I impelled to do it neatly and artistically, but also in such manner that not the slightest possible suspicion could be directed against me. 
To this end, I bent my intellect, and after a week of profound incubation, I hatched the scheme. Then I set to work. I bought a water spaniel bitch, five months old, and devoted my whole attention to her training. Had anyone spied upon me, they would have remarked that this training consisted entirely of one thing, retrieving. I taught the dog, which I called Bologna, to fetch sticks I threw into the water, and not only to fetch, but to fetch at once without mouthing or playing with them. The point was that she was to stop for nothing but to deliver the stick in all haste. I made a practice of running away and leaving her to chase me with the stick in her mouth till she caught me. She was a bright animal and took to the game with such eagerness that I was soon content. After that, at the first casual opportunity, I presented Bologna to John Claverhouse. I knew what I was about, for I was aware of a little weakness of his, and of a little private sinning of which he was regularly and inveterately guilty. No, he said, when I placed the end of the rope in his hand. No, you don't mean it. And his mouth opened wide, and he grinned all over his damnable moon face. I, I kind of thought somehow you didn't like me, he explained. Wasn't it funny for me to make such a mistake? And at the thought he held his sides with laughter. What is her name? He managed to ask between paroxysms. Bologna, I said. He he, he tittered. What a funny name. I gritted my teeth, for his mirth put them on edge and snapped out between them. She was the wife of Mars, you know. Then the light of the full moon began to suffuse his face until he exploded with, that was my other dog. Well, I guess she's a widow now. Oh, ho, ho, ee, hee, hee, ho. He whooped after me, and I turned and fled swiftly over the hill. The week passed by, and on Saturday evening I said to him, You go away Monday, don't you? He nodded his head and grinned. Then you won't have another chance to get a mess of those trout you just dote on. But he did not notice the sneer. Oh, I don't know, he chuckled. I'm going up tomorrow to try pretty hard. Thus was assurance made doubly sure, and I went back to my house hugging myself with rapture. Early next morning I saw him go by with a dip net and gunny sack, and Bologna trotting at his heels. I knew where he was bound, and cut out by the back pasture, and climbed through the underbrush to the top of the mountain. Keeping carefully out of sight, I followed the crest along for a couple of miles to a natural amphitheater in the hills, where the little river raced down out of a gorge and stopped for breath in a large and placid rock-bound pool. That was the spot. I sat down on the croup of the mountain, where I could see all that occurred, and lighted my pipe. Ere many minutes had passed, John Claverhouse came plodding up the bed of the stream. Bologna was ambling about him, and they were in high feather, her short snappy barks mingling with his deeper chest notes. Arrived at the pool, he threw down the dip net and sack, and drew from his hip pocket what looked like a large, fat candle but I knew it to be a stick of giant, for such was his method of catching trout. He dynamited them. He attached the fuse by wrapping the giant tightly in a piece of cotton. Then he ignited the fuse and tossed the explosive into the pool. Like a flash, Bologna was into the pool after it. I could have shrieked aloud for joy. Claverhouse yelled at her, but without avail. He pelted her with clods and rocks, but she swam steadily on till she got the stick of giant in her mouth. 
when she whirled about and headed for shore. Then, for the first time, he realized his danger and started to run. As foreseen and planned by me, she made the bank and took out after him. Oh, I tell you, it was great. As I have said, the pool lay in a sort of amphitheater. Above and below, the stream could be crossed on stepping stones. And around and around, up and down and across the stones, raced Claverhouse and Bologna. I could never have believed that such an ungainly man could run so fast. But run he did, Bologna hot-footed after him and gaining. And then, just as she caught up, he in full stride and she leaping with nose at his knee, there was a sudden flash, a burst of smoke, a terrific detonation. And where man and dog had been the instant before, there was naught to be seen but a big hole in the ground. Death from accident while engaged in illegal fishing. That was the verdict of the coroner's jury, and that is why I pride myself on the neat and artistic way in which I finished off John Claverhouse. There was no bungling, no brutality, nothing of which to be ashamed in the whole transaction, as I am sure you will agree. No more does his infernal laugh go echoing among the hills, and no more does his fat moon face rise up to vex me. My days are peaceful now, and my nights sleep deep. Yes, the narrator is a miserable person and you're not supposed to like him, but damn. At least the dog died ignorantly happy. I have two wonderful puppers of my own, so I don't really allow myself to think about it too much. What a change from the heavy-handed horror October, huh? Huh? Yes? No? I mean, we're not exactly done with horror, but time for some variety, am I right? Next week we celebrate the harvest including a short story that has made the social media rounds recently. It's a beautiful little story, and I was lucky enough to get the author's blessings to include it in the magazine. If you like the podcast, be sure to drop by in the comments or leave a rating or review wherever you found us. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Making this thing takes money, and wonderful patrons make it that much easier and allow me to make this the best podcast I can possibly make it for you, the listener. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. The production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.